0: Too many people die in traffic accidents in California. You know, it's not acceptable that my child can't walk to school. I, I had that experience growing up and we've robbed so many of our children of that. Parents are, are rightfully afraid. We don't have optimum health because people are not walking and biking enough. And a lot of them are not doing it because they don't feel safe doing it. Or it's not convenient or easy because we haven't engineered the roads for that. We've engineered our communities for driving and for for single occupancy cars. That has hurt our health, it's hurt our environment, and it's led to a worse quality of life for all of us and a, a more unhealthy quality of life. We have to make people understand all of this and to want it, to want to change it.
1: We have Laura Friedman, state assembly member, Laura Friedman, new chair of the transportation committee. And we have Melanie Curry, editor of Streets Blog California. Hello. Hello. Which is really the perfect uh, pairing.
0: (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Definitely. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're very excited
2: to know that you are now the head of the assembly transportation committee. Um, That was actually, that was a, a move that some advocates were really hoping for and did not think they were going to see. Um, And in fact, a few months ago, someone asked me, well, who would you make head of the assembly transportation committee? And I was like, well, Laura Friedman, but it was like this fantasy conversation we were having.
0: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I think it's a a big move for the assembly in a way. I mean, not not so much because of, you know, it's me, but just, I think it does signal uh, a different set of priorities Mm -hmm. and a a willingness to uh, try to make a big change in the sector, the transportation sector. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about what we can accomplish over the next few years, Mm -hmm. tempered with a little bit of nervousness about being able to accomplish everything that I'd like to accomplish. So it's it's not going to happen overnight. I recognize that. And um, I have to spend a lot of time learning about stuff, but I'm really, really, really jazzed about the next couple of years.
2: Yes, and I've I've seen that you're reaching out to people and talking to people. And um, tell us something about, like, tell us a little bit about what you see your main um, goals are coming up with with transportation
0: in California. My overriding meta goal, <laughs> I guess, if you want to call it that is to make transportation policy in California as progressive and aspirational as we are when it comes to environmental issues like clean energy and uh, uh, preservation of open space and all the things that we care about in California and push the envelope on, you know, clean water standards, clean air standards, um, clean energy. These are all things that California has taken a leadership position on in the nation and in some cases in the world. And I would like to see us be looked to In the same way for transportation policy that's progressive and forward thinking and encompassing all of the important issues that it touches like obviously mobility and mobility choices, but also sustainability and and greenhouse gas emissions and climate and land use and housing and all of the things that are it explicit it, that are that are completely tied in and inseparable from the transportation equation
2: mm-hmm. so what would that look like and i'm asking because there's there has been efforts in at the state level to tie all these together and you know like sb 375 how many years ago has been trying to tie land use and transportation planning with some success but it's it's not only wonky and way out there up high at a high level, but it also is, um, you know, it, its progress is slow. That's one example of what you're talking about, but what would, what would your ideal transportation landscape look like?
0: So we are actually looking at that bill in particular and ways that we can put more teeth into it and make it work. So I think one thing is to make sure that all of our agencies and all, our, all of our policies are looked through with these various lenses. With the lens of climate, the lens of better land use, the lens of equity, um, the lens of the economic impact on communities and disadvantaged communities and all of the different lenses that we have not traditionally looked at transportation through. So that's one thing. And then secondly, it's looking at our past policies and see you know what impact they've actually had. And see what we need to do to, to really keep pushing the policies forward. You know, when, when, when you're dealing with a transportation system, a lot of times you are have to think about very large projects that are very expensive and large investments. And, and even, even in things that seem minor to people, like a bike lane, that still can be a large expense for a community and a city. So it's not always easy to completely impact uh, those kinds of projects quickly. But there are a lot of of smaller changes that you can make while you make those larger changes that add to um, add to the feasibility of of, mo- of changing mobility the way people think about mobility and um, if I could tell you if I could if I could tell you a bill that would fix all of this believe me I it would be an easy job but it's not going to be that. It's going to have to be really looking at a whole wide range of of policies to try to tie all of this together a little better. Um, A lot of times these issues are siloed. You know, I'll tell you one thing that I've already talked to other chairs of doing, uh, and you will see me do, is a series of hearings, bringing other relevant committees together with the transportation committee to talk about this. So I don't remember ever having a joint hearing and I could be wrong, but I've sat on transportation for four years now and I don't remember us having a joint hearing with the Housing Committee to talk about that nexus between transportation and housing. Uh, we've done a little bit with my committee with Natural Resources um, with air quality, but I'd like to see us do more and really and to talk about environmental justice and air quality uh, uh, and goods movement and all of the issues that we touch on uh, together with that relevant committee. Um, so there, there are things we can do to start to the, the start unsiloing these issues.
2: Mm-hmm. I think your, um, your efforts to do something about speed limits is kind of one illustration of that, of how, first how complex the questions are and also how hard it is to get things moving through um, the process. Um, just to, now please correct me, but my summary of that would be, you started out wanting to um, fix the way speed limits are set you, you had a bill, it got watered down, and it became a task force, and then the task force met, and that was an old whole interesting process, and wrote a report that was basically um, what you had said to begin with, which is we need to change the way that we set speed limits, and as far as I know, that's kind of where we are now, and um, I hope I got that summary more or less right, but like, The next steps would be, how do we address that? And that is not just about speed limits. It's about planning. It's about
0: so many other things that connect with it. Um, Totally. And your summary is, is absolutely correct. I will say that having gone through the process, though, of doing the task force where we had stakeholders from all across the state from a lot of different areas, from not just different areas geographically, because we did have representation from rural areas. We had representation from Northern California and Southern California, but we also had some of the groups that have traditionally opposed a lot of these changes. You know, we had highway patrol, we had um, uh, AAA, we had um, a a whole, we had the bike groups, we had the safety groups to bring everyone together to do a series of meetings um, in the tra- California Transportation Committee's uh, building, uh, you know, and really have staff present and, and have it be guided and have it be funded as we were able to do, um, was very worthwhile in the end of the day. Not only did that group come up with a, re- a very excellent report that had a lot of data to support their findings, but they expanded on uh, from the 85th percentile to really looking at how do we get to zero traffic fatalities, and so they did talk about changes we could make to the vehicle code and to traffic engineering and a whole wide range of things. So now we have this excellent document and I've introduced AB 43 named after my district because it's my number one priority bill. I mean they're all important. We you love all your children but this one's you know really important so it's it's the bill I named for the district and this will try to codify as much of this as we can. But like you said it's going to be a battle because there are still very entrenched Interests and very interest entrenched positions who don't agree with with a lot of this, and sometimes for you know they have good rationale. But when you start to drill down, I think you can answer a lot of the concerns that are out there. So I don't, I, I'm, I can't tell you that even me being chair is going to make this a slam dunk. I, we've already heard some rumblings from the other house, from the Senate, that they may not hear the bill at all, uh, that they might have a rule that just says you can't change the 85 percentile and go pound sand. And so we have all, we've got a lot of hurdles to overcome, but we're going to work on this and we're going to have all the discussions we need to have to answer all of the concerns that that people have. Because at the end of the day, the data shows that a five mile an hour reduction in speed limits can result in an eight to 15% reduction in injuries. And some studies show reductions as great as 28 and 39% reduction in injuries because every mile an hour faster that a vehicle is going. Sort of the injuries go up exponentially. Uh, so even a small decrease in speed limits makes a, a very big difference in the end result of someone possibly losing their life or being named for life or or having a more survivable um injury. Mm-hmm. Not to mention not having the injury at all. And we know that you know the faster you go, the harder it is to avoid injuries and to avoid accidents. Right. Right.
2: Yeah, and I think about the arguments that people raise against um, the system of of setting speed limits and how the, the basic conversation about what you just said about like people driving slower makes the streets safer gets lost in the shuffle and all the excuses about not doing something about it. So really looking forward to you pushing this change, because that's, I think the only way it's going to happen. Is yeah, have- we're looking
0: at clever ways to compel uh, municipalities to invest in all of the other things that you need to do along with the speed limit change, because mm-hmm. changing the speed limit doesn't, you know, it, it often, it, it, the, the argument is that if you change the speed limit, you're not going to really impact driver behavior if the streets are still engineered to make drivers feel safe driving faster. Right. So we're looking at ways to, to try to compel those changes as well along you know along with the um uh being less aggressive about having to raise speed limits all the time when you have people who are who are speeding so we're, we're trying to look at this holistically and come up with solutions that are more holistic and i think the holistic approach will help answer a lot of the arguments against the initial thought of just mm-hmm. dealing with the 85th percentile
2: is that included in um ab46 it will AB forty three. It will be. Oh, sorry, forty three
0: will be. Hoping I remembered your district correctly. Right? Okay. <laughs> That's quite all right. It's all ran, It's all random numbers. Uh, so yeah. yes, that the, those will be, and we're still working on the language, and the bill will be amended as we continue to work. You know, uh, put more of the recommendations from the task force into the bill.
2: Hmm. Wow. Cool. What are your other bills um, relating to transportation and sustainable transportation and? Kind of well, stuff.
0: we are still certainly um, evaluating all of that. Um, I'm looking at uh, uh, parking requirements that cities have, um, you know, right. it's, it's, uh, it, it touches on transportation. It's, it's probably more about housing and land use, but still something that does touch on transportation. Um, we are watching some of the bills that um Cal Bike is sponsoring relating to the Idaho stops and e-bike rebates and, you know, very supportive of, of those concepts, as well as looking at decriminalizing jaywalking. Uh-huh. But again, you know, hopefully looking at not just decriminalizing jaywalking, but at the same time, coming up with ways that you can still disin- disincentivize or discourage dangerous behavior from pedestrians, mm-hmm. but use... Um, the money instead though, to go back into engineering to make those streets more complete and make them more usable for pedestrians. What what I'm thinking about is something that would say, I'm thinking of, of trying to model, and this is all very new, so I probably shouldn't even be talking about it, but the idea would be that the same way that cities have to do speed surveys to be able to enforce on speed limits, My thought is that before a city can issue a jaywalking ticket, they have to evaluate their roads and make sure that it's actually convenient for pedestrians to find a safe crossing uh, in a reasonable distance Mm -hmm. so that you're going to say, if we're going to ticket you, we have to be able to show that we're not forcing you to walk a half a mile out of your way just to get to a legal um, intersection to cross at. And if a city can't demonstrate that, that would then possibly become an excuse for a pedestrian to win a jaywalking ticket, let's say. Whereas right now, there's nothing like that in the law. You can fight a speed limit, but you can't really fight a jaywalking ticket. There's sort of no excuse that you're allowed to give. I want to give there an excuse to, you know, at the same time that cities are going to discourage dangerous pedestrian behavior, I want them to realize they also have to invest in making it more convenient and pleasant for people to walk and safer for them to walk. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, again, look at this more holistically.
2: Mm-hmm. There's also the question of enforcement because, um, you know, of, of racial profiling and who gets jaywalking tickets enforced against them. And I know that um, I've spoken to people at the Office of Traffic Safety, and they are big believers in enforcement on any number of regulations and rules because they say that that creates the most, um, um, that gives you the biggest bang for your buck, basically. If they invest in enforcement, then people tend to follow the rules. I'm not sure they have the data on that, but um, it doesn't account for the ways that the um, uh, racial profiling happens in enforcement. And um, the people who are getting tickets, for example, jaywalking tickets, might just be getting tickets as an excuse to stop them for you know for whatever reason. It's like a a deeper question than just the rule itself.
0: Yeah, and there is some data out there about who's getting these tickets, you know, and it's sort of, it's sort of interesting data. Uh, I think you know decriminalizing the ticket itself and making it a civil infraction instead of a criminal infraction, you know, could help. Uh, I think that. Um, Uh, Making sure, for instance, that so the excuse to stop people is not going to be solved by this. But if people are worried that jaywalking tickets are being given out kind of indiscriminately just to to make money, there's also a thought to making more of that money go towards um, road improvements so that you sort of not incentivizing cities to just give a lot of tickets, you know, any kind of ticket to put money let's say, into their general fund. Oh, they don't get to keep much. I mean, municipalities actually spend more on enforcement than they get back. Most of that money goes to the courts and to the state. Uh, So the idea that police are ticketing a lot of people just to make money, from my experience in local government, it's not true. It costs us more money in Glendale to give tickets out than we get back in revenue. Uh, But I I do think that the the social justice aspect of, of all of these traffic stops absolutely needs to be you know, kept in mind and, and magnified through all of this. So um, that's one of the reasons that we are looking at doing something around jaywalking.
1: Mm-hmm. Can we, you just mentioned Glendale. Can we just talk about your background? Sure. Um, do you want yeah, to- I was a
0: city council member in Glendale from 2009 until I was elected to the legislature in 2016 and mayor, I was mayor in Glendale as well. So Glendale has a really, really bad traffic safety profile and record and a, quite a high number of pedestrian deaths uh, in Glendale. And so when I was there, we brought the Berkeley Traffic Institute, or I don't know what it's called, but there's a, what's that? Safe Travel. Okay, we brought them in. And they spent a the year kind of evaluating Glendale as to why it was so dangerous and making recommendations and to their credit, the city did institute you know the majority of the recommendations that Berkeley brought forward, which is one of the reasons why in Glendale you do see bump outs being put in in a lot of places it's you know it's expensive and it takes a while but they've been doing bump outs they've very aggressively pursued safe routes to schools funding and around the schools they've done quite a lot of work uh, they have a lot of pedestrian signalization and um, sort of a lot of the flashing signal type stuff that was recommended as well as uh, outreach into our ethnic communities. A lot of the jaywalking, a lot of the deaths, um, unfortunately were elderly um, immigrant um, population. So really trying to reach out to the population and talk about traffic safety, traffic rules, making sure that all of the, that we had signs in multi, many languages on the street. So as you walk and you look down, you see, look both ways kind of, or which way you're supposed to look in various languages. Um, so they, they tried to do a lot and yet we still have pedestrians killed uh, on a pretty regular basis. And it's, you know, it's awful. And we have a speeding problem in the city as well at the same time. So they do quite a lot of enforcement in the city. And I, I do not believe it for one second, it's a punitive kind of enforcement. I think the city is very intent on reducing their traffic safety issues. And that's why they do the kind of enforcement that they do. But Glendale is one of these places where you, if you blow through a crosswalk, you've probably got a pretty good chance of getting stopped by a police officer as a car. If you, you know, go through a, st- a crosswalk with a pedestrian in it, you, they do stings quite often for that kind of thing. And they, uh, they ticket speeders so they, they um, uh, don't have the manpower to do as much enforcement as they would like, but they, it's something that the city takes very seriously.
2: Well, there's another question there too. What about things like automated speed enforcement and automated red light cameras? And something that's legal in San Francisco, um, automated, um, the, the buses have cameras and they can give tickets to cars who are blocking the bus lanes. And all of these are, they've been fought tooth and nail by privacy advocates and the CHP who don't want to bring in any kind of automated enforcement. Um, but there's, there's, you know, civil rights arguments for doing so. But all, the, also they have uh, places where that do have speed cameras cut speeding because people know the speed cameras are there. They're, you know, that you can't avoid it. But yeah, we I- can't do that in California right now.
0: Well, I think there's no question. The data is pretty clear that a lot of the automated enforcement makes a very big difference on driver behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, more than the kind of spotty enforcement that we do with live law enforcement. The Bay Area is trying a pilot program where they're going to be doing enforcement that's done by individuals who are not law enforcement or not sworn officers, and they're trying to respond to the social justice Uh, issues and the the worry about armed officers doing traffic stops. So they're doing that as a pilot experiment. I just read about this um, yesterday. So we're going to be watching that and trying to get some details about it. Automated speed enforcement was something that was in the the zero fatality task force's recommendations. And we have several authors right now who are interested in bringing legislation forward in that area. And the privacy concerns are real and they need to be addressed. And uh, I, I think there are ways of addressing them. We already have a, a bill in, a law in California that passed a co- last year or the year before that said that any of this type of data that's collected by agencies has to be destroyed within you know, a matter of weeks. So it, it's not going to be around to kind of go to ICE or you know, other agencies that people might be concerned about. Um, so I think that there are some answers to some of these concerns, but certainly privacy is something that people are rightfully worried about and concerned about. Uh, So that's something that's going to have to be answered to. But I also think that given the concern about the uh, inequity of traffic stops and the fact that black and brown people are disproportionately stopped and ticketed, often for frivolous reasons, and that occasionally these traffic stops escalate and and turn into with a disastrous result, there's a lot more impetus now to have automated systems that don't look at the race or the color of the person driving the vehicle that are just looking at the speed of the vehicle. There's a lot, there's a a fairness and equity component that no one has really raised very much in the past that I think you could elevate a lot more now. And so there are authors working on this. One of the complaints that I always heard about the red light cameras was that they, they felt to drivers very punitive because it's one thing if the light turns red and a couple seconds go by and someone blows through it, most people that I've talked to are quite happy having those drivers be ticketed. But what i was hearing about is people who would sort of roll a right turn on a red light which is a very common it's sort of like a car version of an idaho stop uh, at a red light and people were getting huge tickets um, because of that kind of behavior um which people shouldn't do it certainly but a lot but a lot of people do it so there were all these tickets being given out and these traffic tickets were often five six hundred dollar tickets and they were going to people who couldn't pay them so i do think that if we do Speed enforcement, which I am in favor of, we need to lower the cost of a lot of these tickets, and we also need to only give them people who are going a certain my mi- a certain percentage over the speed limit I-, I don't think they should be given to people who are going twenty seven in a twenty five mile an hour zone for instance I think you'll get the kind of backlash you'll get from the community will be profound but if you reserve this enforcement for people that are truly going at a dangerous speed um, uh, you, whatever that we can maybe all find what that number is, I think that you might get more acceptance from the public um, when the tickets are really going to people who I think everyone would say, okay, you are going 50 and a 30, you were going 70 and a, you know, I'm glad you got the ticket. Maybe that's a way to address some of this.
1: And well, that seems like it's all adjustable too. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Nick. Well, I was going to say that. I mean, it seems like everything you've mentioned from the privacy to the the types of things people would be getting tickets for and the amounts could all be just made smarter. But uh, how about this for an idea? You just, what if you charge people like a tiny amount, like 25 cents for just going over the speed limit? So
0: I've been talking to my staff about ways that we can lower some of these fines because they become extremely punitive to people who can't afford them. And uh, right now, a lot of the tickets are given out you know, in disadvantaged communities. And it's really, really hard for people who are struggling. And a lot of people are struggling right now to pay for the tickets. Um, and it's something that I would like to attempt to do. I know that we're gonna get huge amounts of pushback from the court system, for instance, where the bulk of the money goes and you know, a system that's already struggling financially. You know, it's the kind of thing that's going to be hard to get to the legislature. Others have tried; people have tried to lower these fines in the past, and they've never made it through the appropriations committees because it's it's such a huge, potentially a huge amount of revenue loss. Uh, but I do think that we need to try doing it, and I also think that putting more of these traffic infractions being being making it much more much easier for people and more convenient for people to pay them or contest them by setting up a robust online system, removes a lot of the burden from the court system. So yeah, if you're making everyone go into court to plead on the ticket and to pay the ticket and maybe to go in front of a judge, that takes a lot of time and resources. And so, you know, maybe they can justify getting all that revenue to pay for that. But if you take a lot of that burden off them by allowing people to put their plea in online, pay online, uh, keep them out of the courts themselves, then there's a lot less justification for the courts getting all this money. And right now in a lot of places, even to put your plea in, even if you're pleading guilty, you have to take a day off work and go and sit in a courtroom somewhere or go sit, you know, in a docket and wait for a window to open. And and that's really ridiculous. It's very, very punitive on people. And it leads to people being fined for paying late and and all kinds of of things far beyond the offense that they might have done. Mm -hmm.
2: A model for that could be the, um, so Calbike. I think Calbike successfully passed a law allowing local um, police departments to, I think they, it was specifically aimed at local police departments to create a diversion program for people who got tickets on their bikes. Mm-hmm. So that instead of those going through the court system, they could go um, and take a class the way you can, if you get a ticket in your car, you can do Um, you know, laugh a lot bike or how to drive correctly, I don't know, but this would be specifically aimed at people who got a ticket on their bike. um, And it would, um, you know, eliminate the fine. But the way that they were thinking it could work is just by keeping it out of the court system altogether. So for uh, one model is at the UC Berkeley, their police department does that, but they can do it because they don't send the bills they don't send the tickets that they write to the, you know, local court system.
0: Yeah, there are some models and pilots out there that um, uh, are underway right now to try to start doing that for speeding tickets and other types of, of tickets.
2: In California?
0: In California. Oh, cool. All
1: right. Your speed task force was really interesting and you were probably the perfect person for this appointment, right? Thank you. It depends
0: on who you ask. (laughs) I I definitely come into it as a a bit of a change agent and I think with a different philosophy than maybe past chairs have had. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a different committee, I hope going forward and i hope that we can make an impact on california traffic safety and california transportation policy that's my goal
1: the last person who was the chair the last
0: person well uh, on our side on the assembly side was jim frazier on the senate side was jim beal and you know i i will say uh you know i'm not here to criticize the work that any other chairs have done. I, I've been chair now for a week, and I, I know that there's going to be quite a lot of, of, of barriers and hurdles and things that I will run into with all of the great aspirations we have. Just like you were saying, it's not that easy to write legislation to, to change paradigms. It's not that easy to, to impact large systems and large capital projects. There's a lot of uh, uh, very entrenched thinking out there and it's gonna be hard to change that both from traffic engineers, from policymakers, and from the public. So just because we want something doesn't mean always that we can get it right away. know uh, it's gonna be an effort. So I'm also trying to manage some expectations. Uh, I'll do what I can and I'll push the envelope and push the needle as much as I can. But I have a whole bunch of community members I have to convince and a whole bunch of other legislators I have to convince. And then I also have to work with the Senate and with committees on, on both sides. So certainly not everything that I introduce will pass the first time around. Some of this is gonna take a couple of years and it will certainly take galvanizing from the safety, the bicycle and the pedestrian communities, you know, and trying to get legislators to pay attention and to understand why we're trying to make these changes and uh, to push back against naysayers and, and doubters to try a different way because too many people die in traffic accidents in California, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable that I have had friends who've called to tell me that their child and husband were killed in a car accident. You know, it's not acceptable that my child can't walk to school, or that I'm going to be afraid to send her to school um, by foot. I, I had that experience growing up, and we've robbed so many of our children of that uh, because parents are are rightfully afraid. You know, we we have a. a a system where we don't have optimum health because people are not walking and biking enough and a lot of them are not doing it because they don't feel safe doing it or it's not convenient or easy because we haven't engineered the roads for that. We've engineered our communities for driving and for for single occupancy cars. And um, that has hurt our health. It's hurt our environment and it's led to a worse quality of life for all of us and a, a more unhealthy quality of life. So I, I think there's an imperative, but we have to make people understand all of this and to want it, to want to
1: change it. Do you think about messaging? And
0: I think about messaging. When I was on the Glendale City Council and I was just trying to put in some bike lanes, put in some sharrows and, and talk about stuff that should have been pretty easy. I had council members on the dais who would say, I, I'm not interested in changing things for these crazy sp- spandex wearing you know a couple spandex wearing hobbyists like sure I rode a bike when I was a kid but you know cars are real it's serious you know you, you're trying to make these big changes for you know a small group of, of hobbyists that's a lot of people's mindset they don't think of of active transportation as being a real way that people could get around their community they don't understand that you know people want a different way of living they We don't have a connection in this state between making sure that people can live close to amenities where they can walk, you know, not just to a job maybe, but even just walking to a grocery store. I I have an apartment in in Midtown Sacramento. I can walk to a bodega, you know, within a couple blocks of my house. My neighborhood, it's illegal. It's illegal to have a small grocery store on a corner in my neighborhood in Los Angeles. Uh, And so that means that for most people who live near me, you have to drive to go get a pint of milk. Um, you know, we have to start making more of these connections too, to how we live and sustainability and quality of life. And of course, I don't remember the question at this point, but I'm just gonna, messaging kind of going off here. So messaging is to draw these connections um, to people and show them that, you know, we've already seen it, seen how important messaging is and people speaking up with the conversations about bus lanes, dedicated bus lanes in Los Angeles. Where you have groups of people who think that the people who would take these buses are not people who live in their community you know or not people that we should care about and having people get up and say no i'm actually your neighbor and i take the bus and it's the way i get around and this impacts me i think it's really powerful when that happens
1: Mm -hmm. yeah we're just seeing that in eagle rock with the uh the the bus rapid transit line and The people who come to the outreach meetings are talking about it like you're going to have this influx of, you know, not our kind or something.
0: Yes, there's a lot of uh, very scary uh, thoughts and rhetoric sometimes behind some of these discussions, but... There are people who don't quite understand all of this. And I, you know, I had, speaking of Eagle Rock, I have a good friend who lives in Eagle Rock who in the beginning said, no, I'm not for any of this because we have this beautiful median and we have trees and we don't want a lot of buses and it's going to be urban and we'll get rid of all the green space. And after a while, started to realize, no, actually we can have a safer street and we can, um, you know, be kind to people who are taking the bus and not make them stand in the middle of a freeway where they're breathing in noxious fumes and we don't have to sacrifice things that we like to do it. And so I think sometimes when people start hearing the messages and they understand more, you can change people's hearts and you can change people's minds. So we just have to keep pounding away. And so I do think about messaging every bill at the end of the day has to be messaged because I have to get and get them passed every bill that I write. And that means I have to message to my colleagues. And if there's resistance, that sometimes means I have to go to the communities that my, that my colleagues represent and have them explain to that colleague why the bill is important. So that we always think about messaging, we always think about who the stakeholders are, we think about how we can get the message of the bill out when we need to, and get people to care enough to send a postcard or to make a phone call uh, to their representative. Uh, It doesn't happen enough. And when it does happen, it it does change uh, voting behavior of of members of the legislature. So everyone is listening, you know, be advocates when you care about something, whether it's my stuff, or someone else's stuff, or bike stuff, or whatever it is, uh, don't assume that it's not going to struggle. And even if you and make sure that your representative is on board, and then if you have friends in other places, make sure that they talk to their representatives. It doesn't help when I get 200 postcards about one of my bills. It's nice, I, you know, that's very nice. We tell people, yes, I'm actually the author of the bill. But what would be even more helpful is if those 200 people made sure that they called 300 friends in other districts and had all of them send postcards to other legislators, so we can build those chains out. Well, they I have- think that's
2: a really important um, point and it relates to something that we were talking about last week that um, it's people who are on the ground need to be advocates for what they want and it's not that hard to call up your representative. We, we tend to think, oh, you know, we're not gonna do that. Like, I don't know them and that's just me, but it's, it's easy and it's powerful to weigh in. I
0: get postcards all the time and I, I read them and I get every week my staff tells me how many people called, what they were saying, yes, no. And I look at that every single week, about every bill you know, that comes in, every call that comes into my office from a constituent. I know it's logged and I know exactly how many people called in support of a bill, how many called in opposition. And I love seeing the postcards. I love when I get a postcard from a teenager that says, please vote to get rid of plastics in the ocean. I love it because I think that's a solid citizen. You know, this 13 year old is gonna grow up and they're gonna you know, be more likely to go out and do the right thing and change the world and make things better. So at the very least it inspires me and inspires my colleagues. So I love when people do that. I love when they contact us. We can't legislate in a vacuum. I wanna know what my community's thinking. Uh, if you don't let your representatives know what you're thinking, you
1: can't yell at them about doing the wrong thing. That's my rule. Speaking of yelling, has any of the craziness at the national level shown up in your in your in Sacramento? Yes, we had some
0: people who came yesterday or the day before to a budget meeting. They were anti vaxxers, anti vaccination people who literally threatened people at the budget hearing. They said, We didn't buy all of our guns for nothing you know, you people are awful and you're going to find out what the guns are for. And it was a couple of people and it's, you know, this day and age, that's frightening. You know, that, that is very scary for legislators to have people say that, you know, we, there's a metal, metal detectors people go through when they get into the building, but we walk out, you know, I walk out that building, I ride my bike out of that building, you know, every day up there. And, uh, I probably shouldn't even say that, but you know, we're, we're running around and there's no metal detectors outside of the building. And, uh, Uh, You know, everyone wants to feel safe. Nobody wants to feel that some crazy person's going to take a shot at them. So it is very frightening that people feel so emboldened to go on television and make these threats. When people feel that emboldened, when they think that it's showing off to physically threaten to shoot lawmakers, that just makes me think that, you know, there's people that are crazy enough to act on that. They think they'll be a hero to these people. So it is scary. And I, I, you know, next week, people are nervous about next week about the what's gonna happen around the country. And uh, we saw what happened in Washington. I mean, those images from inside the Capitol building are really terrifying. There are people who went there to kill, kidnap and kill members of Congress. There's no question. And these are people across the country. There are people inciting this. So it, is a, it isn't a scary time for legislators. I mean, I will say, I know people have a right to protest, but I think people that are going to legislators' homes right now in the middle of the night or 10 o'clock at night with bullhorns, should really be thinking about the trauma they could be inflicting on people's children. Uh, you, know, I, you, said, you know, you want to protest in front of my house during the day, peacefully, fine, have at it. Um, but at a certain point, I think people do need to start thinking that some things are harassment and some things can cause some serious trauma to people's children. And, you know, I just want to get that out there because I know there are people who do that and they tend to be people that are on my side of a lot of issues, but I, I personally don't
1: think it's cool. I, I just don't it's taking on a whole new meaning to be a legislator now to be doing what you're doing yep but
0: we're going to keep doing the work i'm not they're not going to keep me home i'm not going to be you know i'm scared of covid uh and i'm scared of crazy people out there but i have i was elected to do a job and i'm going to do my job
1: it's hard to come back to some of the little questions that we had uh, it's okay <laughs> after that big one. but um did we completely talk about what came out of the speed limit, You know, like your whole task force and the findings and, the, and we covered that? I mean, you know, The findings are really about
0: um, doing more to deprioritize uh, the flow of car traffic and emphasizing safety more and making sure that pedestrians and cyclists are seen as being uh, co-equal, but more vulnerable and make sure that we engineer around that as we work on roads, that we put more resources into complete streets, uh, that we don't stop deprioritizing people that are not in a car. And uh, I'm gonna spend a lot of my time the next couple of years thinking of ways to make that real and making sure that that cities who deal with their streets have a lot more reason and resources to do exactly that. Uh, A lot of times I think cities don't think that way necessarily. They are just kind of stuck in the old way of doing things. And especially if the people who are the engineers and the policymakers are not walking around their own city, they may not realize that a street that looks really beautiful and seems to flow well for a pedestrian or someone who's got a stroller might be an incredibly difficult street to get across for a variety of reasons. So unless you're out there walking the streets, sometimes it's hard to know that. And I want cities to be forced to evaluate that on their own streets and so i'll be looking at doing that and looking at ways of looking at the vehicle code to uh, do more to slow traffic down um, to reduce congestion slow traffic down and make things make the roads safer
2: i think um a uh, area to pursue with that too is uh, working with caltrans because the their new policy direction from on top is saying exactly those things but caltrans is so big and that's from the headquarters, but then there's 12 districts and every district is very different. And every district has a lot of people working in it that are stuck in the old way of thinking. And um, any way that you could work together with people at Caltrans trying to shift that would also be very useful. It's also
0: an illustration. I totally agree and your point about They have made good changes at the top, and that's very encouraging, but it takes a while for all of this to percolate down. And that's why I think that legislation to compel some of those changes is also important because you can be aspirational, but if you've got a rule that they have to follow, that makes it a lot realer for people that are are working sometimes pretty far away from those uh, people with the good priorities at the top.
2: Right. And it may take a super long time for um, SB 743 is a good example of that, where they tried to change. They did succeed in changing the California Environmental Quality Act so that you can no longer count vehicle delay as an environmental um, effect or impact from a mm-hmm. development. But it took years for people to recognize, yeah, you know, Delay probably really isn't an impact. And and maybe there's a different way of looking at how traffic might be an environmental impact on something, but it took lots of work, lots of talk, lots of talk, lots of rejiggering. Like how were you were going to look at the um, perspective? I think that law passed in 2014, 2016, and now it's, now we have it in place but it took that long to get it through that's just a warning about how long things can take it can take a
1: while yep absolutely but but yeah that's a real shift in how and how people Mm -hmm. are looking at. it's a really
2: big shift it's just very wonky in background so like people don't even know it's happening they'll see it eventually on the ground eventually
1: right (laughs) Melanie, you, yeah. you you had a question about uh, e-bikes and cargo bikes.
2: Yes. So you said something about supporting the Calbike um, push for more e-bikes sub- for subsidies for e-bikes and um, you know car bikes, cargo bikes. Yeah. And, um, uh, there's a push for more money for active transportation. I think you said that you supported all those things. And I just. Yeah, Tasha
0: Garner Horvath from uh, Oceanside has introduced a bill to expand the rebates that would be, that e bikes that, um, e-bikes would be eligible for. So, you know, I, I look forward to seeing the language and, and looking at that, but I certainly am uh, supportive of the concept. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see that come forward.
2: Mm-hmm. What about transit? which is a whole other complicated subject when you come to comes to sustainable transportation.
0: I think transit's really important. And we have, in the past, historically under-emphasized under it, particularly in Los Angeles. We're doing a lot of catch-up right now, which is great to see. Um, and the, the plans for expansion are very good and robust. And hopefully the new federal administration will help with some of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we also have to recognize that our land use patterns make transit really problematic sometimes because we just don't have the density to really justify the transit investments. So that's why bringing the land use issues together with the transportation issues are so important and figuring out how to get people into suburban neighborhoods uh, using transit in a a way that works and, and is smarter so that when people have to travel around, los I'll take Los Angeles this is where I live, that it's easy and convenient. You know, to me, transit shouldn't just be about servicing people who have no options and giving them kind of the bare minimum. It should be about providing such an excellent experience, something that's so convenient and so much faster than driving your own car that it becomes the preferred alternative even for people who do have cars. That's when you really have a robust transit system. the fact that I can't get to LAX still, and I can't get to the Getty Center, I can't get to the beach or any of these as quickly on transit as I can in my own car. And I live in Glendale. uh, So it's pretty far to all those places. That shows that we don't have a transit system yet that really works. And we have to do the investments to make what we have work better. So MetroLink, which is a great system, the fact that it's still got the one track, it's not dual tracked yet, and the freight trains get priority, means that that system goes down for Metrolink when a freight train goes down and it's not reliable and it's not as convenient as it should be. And I used Metrolink for many years when I used to serve on the Metropolitan Water District and our office was downtown. It was the easiest thing in the world for me to go from the Glendale train station, one stop to Union Station, and walk across the courtyard to Met. And yet there were too many times where the train never came. And there was no announcement and there was no indication of of alternatives. And, you know, I'm standing there with my bicycle, having taken, you know, usually the bus there and having no idea of how I could get downtown because there was no synergy between the bus system and the train system. So there's a lot we need to do to make the system actually work. And so, yes, we need to expand rail and all of that. And we need to have more um, uh, dedicated bus lanes so that those buses move faster but we also need to make the system really work better for people and be more convenient and to be more pleasant. And it also needs to be a system that people feel safe on. And we do know still that women uh, uh, disproportionately don't feel safe on our public transportation systems. So there's a lot of work to be done on all of this, a lot of work, but I'm a huge booster of transit. I, I really would love to have my the culmination of my work in the legislature be that my daughter one day does not have a car, that she can take public transportation conveniently and safely and easily and get around town and not have to spend her life stuck in traffic, that she removes herself as part of the traffic and becomes part of the solution. And that by doing that, she doesn't sacrifice anything, she has a better quality of life. The way that people who live in Boston and who live in New York and live a lot of other places that are real cities Uh, the the kind of quality of life that they get, we should have that too.
2: You did not just say that LA is not a real city. (laughs)
0: LA is not going to be a real city until we have a real public transportation system. I will say it. We'll (laughs) not be a world-class city. We're a real city. We're not a world-class city until we have a robust transit system that is prioritized and convenient and fast and, uh, and excellent true so
2: another question sort of on a different topic what about um, making cars safer what avenues do we have for for example requiring speed delimiters on cars which we seem to be able to do with scooters but and e-bikes but not cars what about suv size what about that sort of um, There.
0: Move? They are good questions. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's something to look at. I don't know how much we are preempted with some of this by federal regulations. I, I just don't know. Um, and I think there'll be difficult conversations in some sectors, you know, I've seen the, the comparisons with sort of the old pickup trucks and the new pickup trucks. Um, but I, I think that they're gonna be very difficult to have when there's still some of the most popular vehicles on the road and trying to, you know, for the sake of safety, get those vehicles made smaller or right-sized. I think it's worth raising awareness about it and maybe even having warning labels or something like that, or figuring out ways of making those vehicles safer through more cameras and more automation. But, but I think that if they're tough, they're gonna to be tough conversations, but you're right, the vehicles, the interior of the vehicles have become safer. You know, people survive accidents at a much higher speed Much more than they used to because of airbags and other technology. And yet the vehicles are capable of doing a lot more damage. They go faster, they go faster, quicker, and they are larger and heavier. So you're absolutely right. And they're taller. And we don't have as much of that in Los Angeles as I see in some parts of the country. You know, I go visit my father in Florida. They have those pickup trucks that are like on stilts. I don't even know what that's about, but you know, where they can literally sort of run someone over or never, you know, there's no way you can see the ground. They're so tall. They're called so- puppy squashers what do they call puppy squashers nice yeah nice. so I you know I my I think the thing that's going to make ultimately make the vehicles safer is getting rid of drivers I, I can't wait for the robot revolution with automated vehicles uh, I know we're not there yet I don't know how close we are exactly but I, I think my Black and Decker, Decker $29 toaster can probably drive a car better than a lot of people I see on the road. So I'm, I'm all, I'm all for that.
2: Well, there's a, that raises another question, which is the, the way that autonomous and automatic vehicles are being introduced. Um, there's, there's very lightweight regulation from the federal from USDOT. Um, there's very minimal regulation from DMV. They're just allowing now um, companies to test um, under certain circumstances and they're expanding those tests, but they're mostly, their rules are about reporting things. Like they have to report if they disengage and, you know, but there's no, they're, they're trying to let people be innovative. So there's no real regulations about how any of that happens. Which is one subject that, okay, that's like a really specific subject. But at the same time, um, companies like Tesla and Mercedes-Benz and other companies are introducing stuff in their cars that are sort of semi-automatic and automatic driving. So people can, you know, take their hands off the steering wheel. And um, sometimes it's just a matter of a software update from Tesla. There's, there's no oversight over that. Who, who does have oversight? Over that, I don't understand that because we're already experiencing um, automatic vehicles, even though they're not legally in the in in the fleet yet, and that's a problem because um, people don't really understand how to manage those. As a driver, they become very reliant on the aut- autonomous part, and it's the technology is not there, so. They're relying on cars to do what they can't do basically right now.
0: Yes. So this is an area that I have a lot to learn in terms of how the rules work and who has control over what. And I, you know, I've only been chair of this committee for a week and this was our first week in the legislature. So I have a lot of, of catching up to do on the, on a lot of things. And, and by the way, uh, if you have me back in a year, I may have very different opinions after doing this for a year, you know, it's, Kind of one thing when you just start and you end up learning a lot and changing your opinions later. Um, but I do want to understand more about the autonomous vehicle regulations. Now, with the Teslas and, and the, the sort of AI assist features, I, I personally think that there's been, I don't know, I, I don't want to call it misrepresentation, but I think a misunderstanding from some of the public about the ability for these systems Uh, And the fact that they're not autonomous systems, they're supposed to be driver assist systems and people are certainly pushing them beyond what they were designed to do. Now, I I don't know whether that's by design or whether um, any of the car companies are complicit in making people think that. I have no opinion about that right now, but I do think that we need to do a better job uh, and, and the car companies need to do a better job of telling their owners that these cars have severe limitations. That this is all supposed to be to help them with certain things, but you can't rely on on them. And they are helpful. Right. Having some of these systems can be extremely helpful. Uh, the automatic braking systems, the the new um, smarter um, cruise control, all of these systems. The lane correct, the thing I, you know, I've, i I've been in these cars where if you start to swerve out of a lane, it makes annoying noises at you. All of this is great, but they're not going to drive the car for you. So these car manufacturers need to do a much better job of telling their users that you cannot take your hands off the wheel. You know, you're not supposed to be let it. This is not, it's not a fully autonomous vehicle. And somehow some people seem to think that it is and that's led to a, a lot of problems. In terms of just the regs and the testing, I agree. We have to keep uh, strict control about over this because in terms of just making sure that these vehicles are safe and roadworthy and I don't know who certifies them. You know, I don't know who's who's testing them, and before they're allowed on the road, I just don't know. So I'll I'll find out and, and report back to you. And but I uh, believe me, if, if whatever ability we have to impact that, we won't be shy if there's a need to to make those changes. But I can't wait to see it. I, I do think it's several years down the road, but one day. Uh, hopefully it will happen. I, an, I I came here today in a mostly automated vehicle. I, I came here today in a vehicle that probably was automated for 90 to 95% of the time it was moving. And that's the 737-800 that Southwest brought me from Sacramento to Burbank in. That vehicle, you know, that thing pretty much flies itself with a lot of, you know, with oversight by the pilots. So the technology is pilot. here.
2: What's that? Oversight by a professional pilot who pays attention the entire time.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I was also in a little train in the Sacramento Airport that all day long goes back and forth all by itself with no pilot with no driver. Now it's on a track and it's doing one stop and there's you know no one in front of it. But I'm just saying we can start small, right? And build up. We can smart start in smaller systems, maybe with some of our commercial vehicles that are doing sort of things by road over and over again in, in more controlled environments. And build it out, so we don't have to go from you know all of a sudden all of San Francisco is automated vehicles. I mean, this this can happen in steps, right? Mm-hmm. And the kind of the steps that we already are seeing uh, AI and automated um, vehicles happen. And I know that there's there was a you know a, a small bus line, for instance, that's somewhere that's automated that they're that they're, it's working, and that makes sense because it's only going in this very small limited location, yeah. and it's you know. It's staying in one, it doesn't go in different places. It stays in its lane. So things like that, you know, make sense maybe to start that way and then start building it out as, as we, as the system gets tested through more
1: controlled, but still real life environments. Mm-hmm. I only have you for an hour, but we forgot to ask about high-speed rail. Yeah, high-speed rail. Um,
0: I have been pretty public in saying that I support the project. I want the project to one day be completed. And I'm very concerned about the uh, status of that project right now for a whole variety of reasons, um, and one of them being the lack of transparency that the agencies had in the past, the the um, difficulty that the legislature and others have had getting you know real a real understanding about change orders, status, costs, overruns, and everything else. But I also have concerns about just the direction, the, the 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 direction that they're taking the project in terms of wanting to have a fully complete electrified project from Bakersfield to Merced, and that being where they put all of the financial resources that they have right now. My fear is that if the ridership numbers don't, are not enormous, if they're not huge ridership numbers, the rest of the project just won't be completed. That's my fear. And we'll have a stranded asset basically in the Central Valley. And yeah, it's nice to have a fast train there, but what people of California voted for and what we were spending, tens of billions of dollars on was supposed to be a line from the population centers, from Los Angeles to the Bay Area, from San Diego to Los Angeles. And I, if we don't end up with that, I believe that this will have been possibly a tremendous waste of money. Uh, I want to make sure that as we invest what we need, what we continue to invest, that we do it in a way that's smarter and that builds ridership so that we have the political will and the public desire to complete the project. So I don't think that we should delay electrification of that system. The the train will still go very, very fast. It'll still be on a high-speed rail line that grade separates it and makes it be a much, much faster train going 130 miles an hour, 140 miles an hour through the Central Valley, but delay the electrification and use that money instead to improve Metrolink, and the tracks in the Bay Area, which will give huge impacts to current ridership in those areas, but also prepare those areas for high-speed rail. Because for high-speed rail to come to Los Angeles, you have to do that anyway. You have to do it anyway. So do that part now, dual track, the Metrolink tracks in Los Angeles, get those freight trains off of the same track as Metrolink, grade separate them so that you can get Metrolink running 135 miles an hour through the LA corridor, all the way from the Burbank Airport to Anaheim and run Metrolink on a 15 to t- or 20 minute headway so that it runs more reliably throughout the day and into the night. Build your ridership. Once people are on those trains, once they are commuting from the valley, from the San Fernando Valley down to Orange County reliably, and quickly and conveniently and pleasantly, they will want to take high-speed rail further. But if you just complete that one section of track, Merced to Bakersfield and everybody has to change trains to go to the Bay Area, when they get to Merced and they lose that time savings, I worry that they're not, that we're gonna have something that nobody wants to, no one sees the benefit of. So that's my feeling about high-speed rail in a nutshell. That's my proposal. Well, I have some other thoughts about high-speed rail, but
2: I I would love to hear them. you
0: and I will have a glass of wine on a Zoom. We'll have some Zoom wine. There we, go. we will. We will talk, and we will. We'll figure this out.
1: There we go. That sounds amazing. Hello. Come <laughs>
0: say hi, Rachel. It's my daughter, Rachel. For those of you who aren't watching, just popped in to the frame. Hi,
1: <laughs> and I have a couple of policy proposals from my co-hosts, but I'll I'll email them to you.
0: Excellent. We lo- listen. We are soliciting policy proposals. This is the right time. We want to hear them. We want to see them. Don't be shy. Bring them on. Thank you, Laura. everyone is listening. Nice talking to you. Okay, have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you,
1: Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.